So, welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today, I have uh, someone who I'm super excited to have, Linda Weiner, who is a sex therapist and um, one of the co-authors on an incredible book on, on sensate-focused therapy. We're going to have a lot of things to talk about today, but before we get in, I'd love you to give any sort of a brief introduction to yourself, Linda. Okay, brief introduction. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and um, then I had hopes of becoming a therapist, and so I uh, got training in therapy and uh, became uh, a licensed certified sex therapist and worked at Masters and Johnson where I trained. Uh, that's a story in and of itself. Yeah. And I've been in private practice now for about uh, 20 years. Uh, and a colleague and I, Constance Avery Clark, as you mentioned, uh, co-authored a book. I love training. I love educating people. Um, and I'm still doing therapy. I will probably remain uh, doing therapy and supervision. Those are my loves. Mm -hmm. And the book itself is really cool. It's the illustrated manual to, to, to Sensate Focus. Um, and it's just sort of like a really big book with lots of pictures. It's such a, um, the pictures really make it more engaging. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the feel of a textbook at all. When Thank it's, you. It, but it has, the tech, it has the technical sort of um, understanding that lots of textbooks have. Mm -hmm. so it's really a good mix, in my opinion, of, of two different things. Mm -hmm. That was our goal. Our goal was for visual people to be able to assist them in understanding how you do sensate focus. Yeah. Uh, for people that like a lot of theory, we've got the theoretical background and the survey of literature. And uh, then because my co-author loves uh, a lot of historical things, uh, the next section is read this only if you're really interested in history and research. And then we go on to the practical, which is uh, sort of where I live. Being a social worker, she's a psychologist, she loves theory, I love how do you do it, break it down in nuts and bolts, like face the stove, how do you do this? And so together we did this great collaboration on a book that provides both the theory and the practical application. Yeah. So I really wanna get into that in just a little bit, but before we do, mm -hmm. how did you get into the field of counseling? And you said you were a social worker, how did you get into that part of the field? Okay, well, you know, uh, uh, when I was a little girl, I had an aunt, uh, Sophie, and she was a social worker in New York City, and she was the happiest person that I'd ever met. She would come for a visit. She was a big woman. She laughed a lot. She had uh, a purse filled with candy. She, if you admired something, a necklace she was wearing, she was generous and would take it off and give it to you. That is the kind of person my Aunt Sophie was. And I thought, my goodness, I'm going to find out what Aunt Sophie does for a living. I want to do that. <laughs> Okay, and she was a social worker uh, in New York City. Uh, but I've always loved people and found them, their stories, their differences, fascinating. And I have always been able to move between different kinds of people from rural uh, Missourians, you know, that I, uh, when I worked at a rehab center, uh, to, you know, sophisticated, world-renowned, blah, blah, CEOs of blah, blah, blahs. So, um, I was always interested in people and their stories. And so I just sort of made a connection to be like Aunt Sophie, the social worker, but 
uh, what drove me to sex therapy, uh, we, you and I were talking about briefly, is probably a little bit my name. My name was pronounced Wiener growing up. And so, as I mentioned to you, there were a lot of Oscar Mayer jingles sung. And I think I became desensitized to sexual innuendo and sexual jokes. Uh, I think then, too, I was born uh, uh, and went off to college during the women's liberation movement and the beginnings of the pill. And it was a, 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 a time for experimentation and, and exploration. It was a, a great time in history in terms of uh, uh, the sexual revolution happening at that time. So. Uh, I think all of those things coalesce. My name, um, the year in which I grew up and what I was exposed to, and my love of people that helped me connect social work and uh, sexuality. And that's sort of my journey. There you go. Mm -hmm. And so at what point did you get into the the sex therapy side of the field? Because if you have a social work license, it's it's a license that gives you the leeway to do a lot of different things. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I, I, I did have a, a, a funny, a bit of a, a funny story about that. Uh, and I did have a little bit of difficulty trying to figure I knew I wanted to be a therapist, but I wasn't sure for a while what kind. I thought I wanted to be a family therapist. So I went to every uh, family therapy training, uh, Salmanuchin, uh, all of the greats in family th- uh, but I had taken a job in child welfare right out of uh, the School of Social Work. I'd actually gone to University of Missouri, Columbia on uh, a scholarship uh, stipend, and I owed the state of Missouri two years for the two years they supported me and paid my educational costs. And at that time, they had just passed the child abuse hotline law, where for the first time, people could report uh, suspected uh, child abuse. And they had hired one person who was in Jefferson City uh, on a cot with one telephone. <laughs> okay. And when they started publicizing, the calls went off the charts. And all of a sudden, they needed to build out you know, uh, capacity. So uh, a lot of social workers who were graduating at that time were swept into the child welfare system. To, and I wound up in a foster care um, position as a child care worker. And what was interesting is um, I sort of got child physical abuse. You know, if you were beaten, if you were mentally ill or had a drug alcohol problem or all of those, uh, you might, in a state of frustration, uh, beat your child if you were neglected growing up. I got that. What I didn't get was sexual abuse. I found those cases fascinating because quite often... Uh, it was a big surprise that uh, at least some of the dads that were being inappropriately sexual with their uh, daughters, stepdaughters, uh, uh, and sons uh, were, quote, good fathers other than this. Uh, And so I learned a lot working in that program because the kids didn't want me to tie daddy up at the the, uh, anthill and drizzle honey over his body. They wanted me to fix this part of daddy. So that became uh, my specialty. And after I did foster care for a while and was a supervisor, I started being a trainer for the state of Missouri. And as such, I got a chance to review proposals for providers in the community that wanted to have uh, contracts to treat child welfare families. So across my desk came this 
proposal from Masters and Johnson Institute. Those are the folks that invented sex therapy. Those are the folks that figured out what happens in the body when the body is uh, aroused. Uh, and basically the science of what happens with arousal and orgasm. And so I was thrilled that, oh my gosh, I get to see this proposal that's for treatment of the whole family in incest and child sexual abuse cases, uh, where the family would be screened, separated, each component of the family, then family therapy, groups for the uh, uh, survivors. So it was a great proposal. And I had the chutzpah having been rejected from pretty much everything I applied for, because you're right, it's hard to make that jump from your degree in MSW or whatever into uh, being allowed to do therapy. You might be able to get a little experience in doing running groups for domestic violence and rape survivors or uh, some for uh, sex offender groups or another you know, biggie or Planned Parenthood, but it's difficult to break into therapy. So I had gotten so many rejections, even though I'd been to all of these um, uh, conferences and workshops, and I had a very good working academic uh, understanding of how to do therapy. No one would give me a chance. So I just, uh, what the heck, I wrote this letter. Hey, Masters and Johnson, I received this uh, across my desk, and I've got to say, if you're starting a new program, you might need some people. And hey, I'm your gal. I know about sexual abuse. It's been my specialty here in child welfare. And oh my gosh, Within a week, I got a letter from Masters and Johnson. I remember thinking, how nice that they responded, because usually, you know, it's post office box, you never hear from them. Uh, and, or they send you this form letter, which I was expecting, you know, gee, thanks, but, you know, we're looking for someone with, you know, additional experience. But no, they said, come in for an interview. And here's an example of where luck, <laughs> you know, uh, serendipity, luck, whatever you want to call it, and chutzpah joined together. And once I got the interview, uh, I, I joined them as uh, uh, co-director of the Child Sexual Abuse Program. And in exchange for, again, working for hardly anything, another stipend, I got uh, their six-month training in relationship and sex therapy, which was amazing for no cost. So... It was, uh, you know, I paid my dues, so to speak, uh, yeah. but uh, it was luck and, um, I don't know, meant to be. So, I mean, even that is so, um, is so important because that's a testament to not being, um, to having a, a dearth, a dearth of understanding, mm -hmm. not just about sexual functioning in, you know, partnered relationships, but also just in families in general. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you could give a few thoughts on working with sexual abuse, which is a very common thing, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff I've seen says that 50% um, of people, you know, who come into therapy have this issue. In my own caseload, when I was to track my own numbers of people, that's, that's about right. Mm -hmm. to half my cases and most of those cases, people have never even talked about it or they've never even been asked about it. So if you were to give just a little bit about working with that, um, what would you say? Yeah, uh, you know, there's this uh, checklist about, you know, uh, traumatic experiences in childhood. and The ACE, yeah. Uh, yes, the ACE. And so uh, most of the clients I see have either been abused, neglected, or have sexual abuse issues. That's also a much higher percentage as a sex therapist 
the number of people I see who've had, who have sexual trauma in their background is higher than the average, uh, I'm sure. And sometimes not fully remembered. Right. Uh, and <laughs> so therapy is, uh, uh, can be a, a big, scary thing. Uh, and pe some people say, you know, I'm, it's too much for me. I'm going to, I'm going to back out for now. I have to respect that. So I think uh, whenever we're uh, dealing with people who are troubled, uh, there's going to be a percentage of abuse, neglect, and, and sexual abuse. And unfortunately, uh, sexual abuse is still rampant. And uh, my hope is the, the movements that are underway for uh, mostly adults, survivors, uh, will, will help us move back down to protecting children again because I think there's such a backlash from the false memory syndrome uh, allegations back in the, was it 80s maybe? Yeah, uh, I think it's 80s and early, early 90s. Yeah, and so most therapists sort of shut their mouths now and don't want to see and kind of do this thing, you know, when they think there might be trauma. So I'm encouraging everyone not to uh, implant ideas, but to be open to drawing out and hearing uh, all of the traumas that might exist for someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important because, and that's sort of the hard part, right? I think in some ways, if you, if, when it comes down to being practical, you want to attend to where your client is. Yes. You want to ask questions that um, other people have been afraid to ask. But on the other side of that, you don't want to implant or give false memories, which mm -hmm. unfortunately did happen for certain people. And it mm -hmm. was traumatic. Yes. Uh, yes. So, yeah. There's a really good discussion of that in uh, a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, yeah, medical book. Uh, mm -hmm, which is a very good uh, uh, analysis of how you might discern whether something is a false memory or not. And so I think that conversation is hopefully happening again. And some of us who had been afraid of being sued or uh, actually concerned about the malpractice aspect of it, uh, uh, need to kind of begin to approach the canyon again carefully. Mm -hmm. So, um, how did you like? What was it like working with Master and John? Like, that's classic. You know, it's like Mecca. Yeah, right? <laughs> like in some ways, that's the. And there were other really important people who were doing really important work, but um, their influence, I think, can't be understated. So Absolutely. yeah, I mean, what was it, what was that like? So uh, what it was like was uh, absolutely fascinating. I had the kind of training that you can only dream of. Uh, in this six month program, you would get a lecture, let's say, on a sexual dysfunction. Then you would uh, listen to a recorded case of them in, doing therapy with wow. these folks. They recorded all of their therapy sessions. Wow. for fear that there might be an allegation against them and they would have uh, proof against it. it never came to that. So, uh, or we would hear a live case on that subject and then uh, masters and uh, the other therapist or another team, it was always a male female team treating heterosexual couples um, would come in and we could ask, well, why did you do this instead of that? Or what was your thinking? Or if, you know, you could ask anything. And it was a live lesson in how to do it. It was amazing. I, I can't say enough what an impact that had. Mm -hmm. Wow. And was that different than the Sensate Focus stuff? Like, was it more like 
yeah. relational or was it just all intermingled or what was the yeah i mean uh masters and johnson's uh are known for behavioral intervention sensate focus was their invention and i'll tell you a little about the history of this so uh masters theorized that most sexual dysfunctions if they weren't medically induced were in a problem related to anxiety particularly he was a specialist in erectile dysfunction where anxiety was one of the key things that was a problem uh, which uh, kept an individual who had no medical problem from getting an erection or keeping an erection and so uh, he theorized this was anxiety related and uh, uh, Virginia Johnson contributed to uh, the, the field. Uh, she was a, a child who uh, her mom would trace her face to help her calm herself and relax her. And so you should talk about that. I don't think people remember what, what tracing is. Relaxing experience. And so she then suggested that what they would do is have couples relax with one another by touching one another in a way that you know wasn't to turn one another on or to make something happen just as a kind of all over uh soothing connecting what we understand now is a mindfulness practice and a somatic practice of getting back into the body and out of your head okay which that's what good sex is about being there for yourself which is a not self it's self-centered but we have called it selfish but that's really what happens is you're in your own experience and your mind is shut off and you're in your body and this sensate focus replicates that while helping a couple feel connected to one another because touch is magic so uh that is a big part it's the fulcrum if you will of the therapy so you 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 work with the individuals and the couple with their uh intra intrapersonal their own issues their interpersonal issues or uh, uh, interactions. And then the sensual, which becomes uh, sexual through the sensate focused touch. So the therapy involves both the inside and the outside of the bedroom, because uh, as I say, when couples call and they say, well, we've been in marital counseling, but our sexual problem hasn't you know, fi gotten fixed but we still have some communication problems. Do we stay with the marital therapist and then see you? And I was like, no, I really don't know how to get the genitals together if I can't get the hearts and minds together. So I do it all, you know, uh, because the sex therapist is someone who's um, trained to identify sexual and other uh, mental health difficulties then knows how to intervene, you know, with depression, anxiety, bereavement, the general things, then it's kind of like a pyramid. Then there's another layer where you get um, experience and training in working with couples. And then on top of that is the top of the pyramid, the sex therapy training. So you know how to do everything all the way up and through the sexually intimate part of someone's relationship. So uh, it takes a while to get certified and to get your feet wet in this field yeah yeah i have a friend who's thinking of doing um sex therapy certification through mm -hmm. asac very soon yes um and i'd love to talk to you about that but before we do can you let's talk a little bit about synthetic focus because you wrote the manual and even that story is sort of fascinating is mm -hmm. they never wrote the manual before no so uh I, when i was trained there in 1982 
uh, they were describing sensei focus as you, you touch for yourself, you focus on your own sensations, and you bring yourself back from distractions. Uh, but I was teaching at uh, uh, the School of Social Work at Washington University here in St. Louis, and I was going to teach a segment on sensei focus touching, and I started reading other authors, and uh, I was shocked to, to see that what other authors were were describing was touching to pleasure your partner and touching to pleasure yourself, though not worried about whether you were aroused or not. Uh, when Masters and Johnson wrote their book in 1970, uh, their first book, Human Sexual Dysfunction, well, it wasn't their first book, but the first book on sex therapy, their first book was on human sexual response, the laboratory book about what happens in the human body. The second book was about how one applies what we learned about optimal sexual functioning to people who are having sexual difficulties. And in that description, uh, in their 1970 book, oh my God, there was this discussion of sensei focus that was, you know, touched to pleasure each other. Uh, uh, this indescribable, it was very flowery and romantic and and I was like, oh my gosh, this wasn't how we were trained at all because the very basis of uh, removing the anxiety through sensate focus is not just the anxiety about whether I have an erection or not, as the 1970 instructions said, don't worry about how, whether your body functions or not. But also, I don't think they really got it that at that time that when you were telling people to touch, to pleasure yourself and the other person, that is also pressure. So while they're taking away pressure to respond sexually, they weren't necessarily taking away pressure to feel pleasure or to give pleasure. So I think somewhere between 1970 and the time I was trained, they changed the concept to, we don't care if you feel pleasure. We only care that you can describe what it is you feel in a non-evaluative way, by way of temperature, where on your partner's body are they warmer or cooler? texture of hair and skin. What is the texture of the hair on the head compared to the hair on the beard, compared to the hair on the legs? Um, and it's non-evaluative. So if it's a female partner you're touching and she hasn't shaved her legs, your, your evaluation is not, oh, she hasn't shaved her legs. Your evaluation is spiky. <laughs> okay. So non-evaluative uh, uh, touch temperature, texture, and the third dimension is uh, pressure. How much pressure and whether it feels softer or hard as you touch your partner or as your partner touches you, to be aware of that dimension of sensation. Uh, and so in, in reframing this to we don't care whether you're aroused and we don't care whether you like it and we don't care whether you look forward to doing it and we don't want you to evaluate it, just describe it, we're inviting you into your body and closing off the brain, which is what happens when you get aroused. Uh, when you get aroused, you're in a mindful state. And so, uh, you know, you're, you're not thinking. But let me describe something to you about how cool this sensate focus is. Uh, sex is a natural function. And basically, you don't have to teach a baby boy how to get an erection. You don't have to teach a baby girl how to lubricate. Their bodies know how to do this. Uh, but uh, 
sex is the one thing that doesn't work with this part of our brain that works from back here in the primal brain. And we're so, uh, our country is so focused on this, thinking our way through things, solving problems, that it's difficult for, uh, for some people to just allow. And so uh, all natural functions are not controlled by this part of the brain. And so uh, when you think about sensate focus and how it works to help people, be in the present moment, be mindfully connected to their body, their body knows how to turn on and does so. And so we talk about it being similar to sleep. If you're trying to fall asleep and you're tense because you're going to be on somebody's podcast, you know, the next day. And so you think, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? Is, is, is Jordan going to interview me or uh, am I going to have to come up with something? So the more you think anxious thoughts, the more you are anxious and the less likely you are to be able to sleep. And so then you think, oh my gosh, if I don't sleep, it'll be really bad. I'll fall all over my tongue. So then you get yourself more tense. So what do they tell you to do, Jordan? They tell you to count sheep. At first I thought that was to bore you to sleep, but no, while you're counting sheep, you can't be worried about tomorrow. And then that opens the pathway to going to sleep. Yeah. In the same so way. Um, no, you're, you're doing great. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to something that you said in just a okay. second. In the same way, if you are focused on temperature, texture, pressure, you're not worried about whether your erection is going to be there or whether you're going to feel pleasure or whether you're going to get turned on and be able to be orgasmic. In the same way, it gives your mind something to think about that's non-anxiety provoking, facilitates where we want to go and allows natural function to happen. So I just wanted to finish that thought yeah. about natural function and how sensate focus works. Isn't that an amazing? Yeah. Like, of course, you know, it's primal. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that almost sounds self, self-evident after you hear it. Yes. But, you know, it's also like when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't come to mind. <laughs> so you have to right. be taught it in a way, right? You have to be right. know where yeah. to look. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. And it sounds like, from your perspective, it is very, since they focus, is very, very close to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, because in mindfulness, you're doing the same sort of thing of not evaluating your thoughts, just noticing mm -hmm. what happens and where they come and then letting them go and returning back to breathing mm -hmm. or whatever you're focused on. Mm -hmm. Correct. And the ohm or the breath is the thing that you're focused on, like temperature, texture, pressure. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is like uh, mindfulness for, for like couples then. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for the individual, like for people who are, uh, have had sexual trauma, who have become divorced from their bodies, this is a very effective way to, to safely bring yourself back to your own body and get comfortable again in your body and be able to be present in your body as a first step to being able to share with the partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, back to uh, Bessel Van Eyck is part of what he says, people need who've been through trauma, right? They need to get back into the body and reground themselves. Exactly. And feel comfortable mm -hmm. doing so. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that it's, um, not up in the front of the brain, which I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about like the prefrontal area. Right. Where, where, where is it? Where is sex in the, in the brain? The primal brain. We're breathing, respiration, uh, and sexual function are all lodged in the primal 
brain, the autonomic okay. uh, nervous system. The, autonomic. What is it? Mag, mag, uh, I can't think of it. Mammalian brain. The, okay. So all in the limbic part of the brain. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. And so, so many people come in with a sexual difficulty and they are um, using the, the prefrontal cortex to try to solve the problem of erection. <laughs> okay. And it doesn't really work. And uh, sometimes I have to talk to them about where we're going with the sensei focus. And uh, the analogy I use is many people are able to connect to this one. So when you get in a shower and the water is just the right temperature, some people don't do this, but many people do, where they put their head in and they're like, uh, you know, you're suspended. You know, I said, what are you thinking about then? And nothing. <laughs> okay, that's exactly where we want to be. We want to be drowning in sensation. Mm. It's there. If we just turn our brain off and we tune into it, it's there. The sensation will take your body where you need to go in order to be aroused and be responsive. Yeah, that is very enlightening. I've, I've, um, I've heard lots of sex therapists and sex coaches talk about how everything is sexual. And I've, I've, in the past, I've been like, that's a little bit of an overblown statement. Mm -hmm. But if you think of it that way, right, of um, being mm -hmm. able to be fully in your body, mm -hmm. enjoying that sensation, mm -hmm. um, being in the moment, mm -hmm you know, yes. and yes, in that okay. sense, yeah, there's, there's a lot of sensation, sensualness, right, that is going on all the time, yeah. and are you tapped into that, or are you, or are you stuck up in your brain, always trying to figure everything out, linearly, exactly. and cognitively, and exactly, and so, some of the smartest people have the most sexual difficulty, because mm -hmm. they're yeah. so effective in thinking their way through and researching and understanding and not being in the body. You know, there are some people who take a shower to get clean. They take a walk to get exercise and don't ever notice the sway of the body and how the breeze feels on you and so on. So uh, it's so important to help those people as part of the process, become more physical and become more aware of things uh, from smell to taste to touch. Because yeah. uh, we have overemphasized in our culture the importance of um, uh, cognitions and, and uh, you know, the problem-solving parts of the brain. Yeah. I think I also like how you're talking about this because um, there is a, a somatic intelligence and there's an mm -hmm. intelligence in, in the body. Of course. And I think that we're so primed to not think about that that even to say that sounds sort of woo-woo, but it's the same sort of intelligence that good athletes have, that good dancers have. And that's what you're talking about, mm -hmm. that all thinking can't just happen up in the brain and has to happen also in the body. Mm -hmm. And we do that all the time, mm -hmm. but to what degree do we do it? Yes. And, and, and do we do it well? Yeah. Not thinking, just allowing ourselves to be in a, visual space or creative space um, but of course artists and you know there are people that are more that way as you say dancers artists uh, that are that inhabit the body uh, and creativity uh, parts of the brain that aren't again very well emphasized um, in our culture so teaching people to value that again 
and, uh, and be there again. But I, I want to uh, mention something you said, being in the body and uh, appreciating the body. I think you said something like that or enjoying the body. Uh, and enjoying is actually something, you know, if, uh, my client were here and we were talking about sensate focus and they used that word, I would say, well, you know, you, you don't go for enjoyment. Enjoyment happens when you're in the present, in the moment, allowing for whatever without trying to push or force. It's like, have you ever had a good time at a party when you're asking yourself, am I having a good time at the party? Yeah. Never. <laughs> when I'm evaluating, I'm never in the experience. And when I'm not in the experience, only later can I look back and say, gosh, that was a fun party. I really laughed a lot. Yeah. So, uh, so much of our uh, culture is not only left brain, it's also about evaluating. Uh, there isn't much we do that we don't have an evaluation associated with. Hey. Yeah. You know? No, that's a really good point. That's, um, I, I do a lot of mindfulness and a lot of mindfulness training with people. And I think that's what you're talking about is where people often get hung up in the mindfulness training. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I've seen people get, part of why I think my clients do that is because um, they want to feel good because feeling bad doesn't feel good. Right? Like, like it, you know, it's almost like people have two options of either I avoid the negative or I just sort of space out and try to, um, not be present, just go cognitive. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle that? And since they focus when people are like, man, sometimes it doesn't feel good. And so it's then to stay with it, even if I'm just trying to evaluate it is, um, is difficult. How do you handle that? So in sensei focus, uh, what we say is, I don't care if it feels good. I just care that it doesn't feel physically or uh, psychologically uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the focus is you touch for yourself, but only because your partner will protect you from doing anything psychologically or physically uncomfortable by moving your hand, by putting pressure on your hand to let you know it's maybe a little ticklish, so use a little more pressure or a little less pressure. And that if your partner moves your hand, instead of it being like, oh, darn, I got feedback that I'm not being a good lover, you know, which is the way we're trained to think, is uh, rather we'd like him to see it as how nice that my partner is being vulnerable enough to let me know where he or she is at right in this moment. And that I don't have to be responsible for mind reading and making sure that I either turn them on or don't, you know, annoy them or with my touch. So. Uh, each person is encouraged to be self-responsible and to share where they're at and ask for what they need. Uh, yeah. And so uh, it's, it's a freeing dynamic. Uh, I think especially for, well, I don't know if especially for men, but you know, men in our culture are supposed to be the magic touchers, the sex experts, uh, the story of sleeping beauty where he awakens her with a kiss, right? <laughs> okay. It's yeah. a metaphor for the role of men in at least Western culture. So um, it's a relief for them uh, uh, to feel like, oh, I don't have to be a mind reader. And, you know, uh, Masters, Bill Masters used to like to say uh, that the best male lovers were uh, uh, men who could follow their, their partner's uh, indications that were good communicators and opened up that channel of communication rather yeah. than being like, the mind reader yeah. who just always knows a step ahead of where their, their partner is.
Um, so it sounds like part of how you guys deal with things that are un uncomfortable is by giving back control to the person who feels the discomfort. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about for people who have, um, who are older, maybe have injuries, maybe have chronic pain? How does that work then? Because you could be laying or sitting or whatever, and after mm -hmm. a while, position gets uncomfortable. How mm -hmm. would you guys handle that sort of thing? So recognizing that right up front, and we talk to people about when they do the sensate focus. So uh, most people think it's going to happen naturally. We ask them to schedule it uh, because it doesn't. They're great at avoiding it because who wants to do something that brings emotional pain, even though they want the fruits of the work with us. So we ask them to schedule it. Uh, and, you know, scheduling for people who have arthritis or uh, uh physical pain we say okay what's a good time for you when your medication is kicked in you know and before you've worn out so it might be 10 o'clock in the morning tools uh, for people who have uh, either uh, limitations or uh, pain and so there are wedges of all kinds available as an aid to get you the right angle there are swings that take uh, pressure off uh, and also I guess add some fun to your to your life uh, uh, being physical with one another in a swing uh, so all kinds of furniture and, and aids are out there now uh, which is wonderful uh, to help people who have disabilities or uh, who have uh, pain or illness issues okay yeah, and I think that's where the expertise of the sex therapist also comes into play. Knowing the types of things that typically help in these situations, you know, for, for people who have some sort mm -hmm. of um, handicap or have some sort of injury or, or illness, you know, being mm -hmm. generally familiar with how bodies respond and what will become, what has typically, typically been comfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's been nice is to see over the years how much more attention sexuality has gained with uh, uh, people in the cancer field. You know, it used to be that uh, cancer survivors were told, hey, you know, don't worry about your sex life, uh, just be happy you're alive kind of thing. Well, people are now uh, more out front about wanting a part of their quality of life is their sexual uh, side, uh, their sexual selves. So uh, how much more open people are in nursing and uh, uh, medicine uh, to the fact that you can be elderly and still want to be sexual. You can be postmenopausal and still want to be sexual. You can be post-cancer treatment and want to be sexual. You can be in the middle of it. You know, you know that it is an individual um, uh, choice. And the be health benefits of being sexual have been published now, showing that uh, touch and sensual interchange and sexual interchange lower blood pressure, uh, 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 produce feelings of well-being, reduce anxiety and depression, even reduce pain. Uh, uh, you know, because the body at orgasm is washed with uh, some of the chemicals that uh, bond and some of the chemicals that, bl that bring the pleasure and reduce pain. So uh, it's kind of the natural healing agent. And, oh, who, my grandmother would be... <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> scandalized 
Um, so look, that's a brief overview of Sensei Focus One, and everyone needs to get the book. I got the book even before I taught the class because it was just a great book. Um, what about Sensei Focus Two? So Sensei Focus Two is, you know, once people no longer have the sexual difficulty, or maybe they don't have a sexual difficulty, and they come to somebody who's uh, a sex therapist or a relationship therapist, and they say, you know, we've been married for 20 years, it's a little boring, uh, it feels kind of disconnected and kind of soulless and mechanical, and we now know what, you know, each one, and we just perform uh, so since focus two is about, about functioning, they're just going to embellish their sexual relationship or breathe some new life. It's about being open to exploring, to discussing with one another. Uh, you know, maybe they want to try tantric sex, which is about, you know, uh, using breath uh, and moving that through the genital organs. Uh, maybe they want to try a little... Uh, uh, a fun role play thing like okay i'm gonna be down at the uh a convention center hotel and i'll pretend i'm here for a conference and neither of us are married and i'd like you to pick pick me up and talk me into going to bed with you upstairs in the hotel okay and you know just uh uh playing naked twister okay or strip poker how to uh, explore, challenge themselves, explore some things that, uh, uh, you know, we're a very shy uh, culture when it comes to sexual communication. It's much easier for us to be sexual than to talk about what we might actually like uh, with one another. So Sensei Focus 2 is about helping them communicate and explore and uh, enrich uh, yeah. their sexual connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, uh, I mean, it almost like one is getting up off the ground, right? And then two is taking, taking flight. Yes, you know? mm -hmm. exactly. Wow. But when you start talking to people about swinging from the chandeliers and they're worried about functioning, the idea right. of sex as fun is not, <laughs> no, the bed is a place that you go to be unhappy and for sex to die yeah. is their experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the idea of giving and receiving pleasure right out of the gate is too much. Too much. It's too far too soon. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like to circle back to something you said a while ago because you're also ASEC certified and an ASEC ASEC supervisor. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Students who are wanting to get into this field and sure. friends of mine as well. How, how does what's that mm -hmm. process like? So uh, if you go to the ASEC.org website and- Which is, um, I should say, American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Yes. ASEC, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. So you go to their website and you uh, click under certification and there's several categories that you can be certified under as a sex educator, a sex sexuality counselor, uh, which a lot of physicians are now doing, those who are, say, gynecologists who want to be able to offer some kind of uh, sexuality suggestions to their clients, their patients rather. So uh, sex educator, sexuality counselor, and sex therapist. And so it lists the various kinds of uh, educational background, you know, a master's degree in counseling or theology or uh, social work, uh, 
a certain, then there are these core, uh, core learnings that they want you to have about, you know, what the sexual response cycle and the different kinds of sexual difficulties. So they want you to have a very good grounding on sexuality and all of its, in all of its glory with special populations, uh, uh, understand the cultural implications uh, uh, of how people may differ and the family of origin issues that they might have. Also, there's a component, uh, I'm proud to say now, of uh, marriage and relationship therapy. There didn't used to be a requirement for that. And I was like, how can you do sex therapy if you can't do couples therapy? Because yes, so that's in there now. Um, so getting some uh, certification uh, academically uh, uh, in couples counseling uh, is important. And so then uh, getting supervision, a certain number of hours, where you have a caseload and um, you discuss, it does take about two years uh, to wow. get all of the all of the material under your belt and to get the supervision. So it's like getting a, another master's or, or PhD, but well worth it because you then are truly know that you are um, providing a quality service, and other people know you are too. You know, people can read a book and say they're a sex therapist, but to get certified, it takes uh, 300 hours, 90 hours of learning, 60 hours of supervision. Uh, it's, it's a lot, but if you love the field, you love learning, yeah. and uh, you, in the process, attend ASEC conferences and become part of a big community of really diverse, uh, interesting people. Uh, of every persuasion and it's uh, it's a beautiful thing mm -hmm. so you would recommend it it sounds like oh yes uh-huh yeah. but it's not something you take lightly you have to really know i got i'm going to commit myself to this for a couple of years yeah mm -hmm. yeah um it sounds like something that well i remember in my own sex therapy class when i was back in a master's program um we read this book and the guy was saying, he was, he was making a very valid point. He said, how can you be a good couples therapist if you haven't been trained as a good sexual therapist? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think in some ways the field is sort of um, divided. Sexuality is such a big part of, of our lives. And for people mm -hmm. like me who are MFTs and do a lot of couples work, if we don't have good mm -hmm. sex therapy training, then something is missing from our education. I would agree. Yeah. I think more recently... Uh, there has been a recognition of that and uh, more emphasis in the field because a lot of times if you've got a couple that's really not getting along and you help them communicate better and they're caring for each other and their negative dynamics are diminished and their positive uh, uh, interactions are maximized, uh, sometimes sex resumes on its own. No problem, nothing right. needed but clearing up the issues in the relationship. Other times it doesn't come back. And that's when you need as a uh, relationship and marital therapist, the sex therapy skills. Yeah. And so many of my clients say their, their marriage and family therapist never even broached the subject of sexuality because they're a product of this culture too, where there's inhibition and um, uh, uh, also, you know, fear of not knowing everything. Okay. Uh, and it's okay to not know everything. Um, and you do trainings. You do trainings regularly now. Huh? 
Uh, yes, now we're switching. I love in-person trainings, but okay, we're <laughs> doing webinars now. Because <laughs> you're actually not that far from uh, where, where I am. So once I got the book, I was like, I've got to go see you guys. And then, you know, mm-hmm. Corona and then, hit. And so locked in yeah. the house. Well, yeah, uh, tell me about your uh, training schedule and cycle. And what kind of trainings do you Yeah, offer? so uh, actually, uh, right now I'm working on a new website. And that website is predominantly focused on training and I've got two webinars that I've done and a full day training that I'm trying to get online on that learning platform so that people wherever they are can tune in and learn more about Sensei Focus and get some CEs through ASECT. I'm also going to be doing some webinars. Uh, My next scheduled in-person was going to be in Austin in October but I don't know if that's going to happen. So um, I'll be, I'll be uh, providing opportunities to learn via my website um, and also uh, through webinars that I'll be announcing on ASECT and some of the sexuality uh, 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 sites. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and those count not just as CEs, but also for credit towards certification? They count toward ASEC certification uh, uh, to get accredited. Um, As a social worker, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to try to get uh, CEs for social work and LPCs and PhDs. I'm just kind of going to see how it goes with ASEC certification. Mm -hmm. So look, we're running up on our time here. Now I have just a few more questions and I want to be respectful of your time. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you. So before I get into my last question, um, I want to ask, like, if people walk away from this uh, hour-long conversation with one major point, what would you want them to, to walk away with? I would love them as uh, counselors of the future or counselors in the present. I would love them to learn a bit about Sensei Focus and get somewhat comfortable because um, you don't have to be a thoroughly trained sex therapist to help people uh, if their problem isn't too severe. Uh, And in particular, let's say it's uh, low desire or no desire, which is the most common sexual difficulty, and they're working with a couple, then giving them sensate focus suggestions and not even doing much more than just, you know, checking in with them about how that went and uh, seeing if they're doing them, if they're uh, able to do those three things, you know, touch for self, focus on sensations, bring themselves back from uh, distractions. What most marital counselors tell me is that, oh my gosh, uh, we didn't get very far in sensate focus and the things that I was working on them, uh, uh, you know, to be kinder to each other and to be less uh, uh, reactive to, you know, the toothpaste tube being squeezed from the wrong place. Once they started doing the touching, they suddenly got less irritated with each other, felt more bonded to each other, felt more connected with each other, felt more loved by each other, because touch is primal. Yeah. So even if there's not a sexual difficulty, or if it's one that you may not know how far you can get, I would suggest that you try Sensei Focus with your couples. Yeah. All right, my last two questions. What do you think is on the far side of the, of, the, of the field. What's on the horizon? What do you think, man, people should be looking at this now, but it'll be commonplace in 20 years. 
or well, won't, but is overlooked and needs to be brought to the forefront. What is what's on the horizon? Well, what's on the horizon, I think, uh, is uh, uh, there are a number of people uh, who have uh, spectrum disorder who are have difficulty finding partners, uh, and we understand how important touch is. So uh, that is one of the things on the horizon. How are we going to deal with a large percentage of the population? Well, large if you're one of them uh, who has difficulty finding partners. Uh, there are some social skills training and, and that sort of thing. But I think uh, uh, being more liberal about uh, surrogate partnership where uh, people uh, can have someone who's like a masseuse, but it is a professional relationship in which there is the availability of touch and sexual interplay. Uh, there are a lot of people working on um, uh, uh, robot partners. And, you know, it's quite amazing and I think controversial. Uh, but again, for that same uh, percentage of the population of difficulty forming partnership, uh, it's kind of a, a revolutionary and disturbing idea uh, to a lot of people. But I think we have to answer that question because what we have now are a lot of lonely people, uh, even people that aren't on the spectrum and people of every age. Touch is such an important issue. How are we going to meet that need? that's on the horizon for us to figure out. Yeah. You say that and um, I mean, it seems like you're really saying, hey, we're moving into a country that is becoming more and more touch hungry. And as people, we need to be touched. Mm -hmm. And so what does that look like in the future moving forward? Mm -hmm. And for people who aren't neurotypical, you've got to figure that out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because here we are. We're not even in person anymore. We can't shake hands. Right. You know, even those of us, uh, you know, who, uh, how, how should we say, we might have had the virus and I hope ultimately it'll be like, uh, uh, you know, the, the group chats with people in HIV categories, you know, where we'll be uh, uh, able to say, hey, you know, have you had the virus? And are you safe now? Uh, do you have antibodies? Because we are so touch hungry and we, we want human connection and we want to be in person. Yeah. You know, that really resonates with me. I'm, I'm about to have my second kid and I just picked up a book from one of my mentors called Touch and it's all about how infants need touch to mm -hmm. develop. And I'm sure you know about all the early studies about failure to uh, thrive when kids would just literally wither because they're not being touched. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways it sounds like sensate focused after having talking to you is, is mm -hmm. weaving the touch, the touch back in to romantic mm -hmm. or erotic relationships. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's sort of the basic platform which everything else can then be built. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Because it reduces anxiety, depression, loneliness. Yeah. Even self-touch helps you feel more uh, uh, peaceful at peace, more mindful. Yeah. So yes, for all those people listening, uh, focusing on touch and being touched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And that's, that is more needed now than, than ever. Cause we're so, <laughs> okay. So last, last question. What's on your night, Sam? What's, what's the book that, that you're currently reading? 
for fun or for pleasure that you know has got you just enthralled or maybe oh gosh well I have I had nine books from the library. <laughs> now I'm down to two, and I'm a luddite. So now I'm going to have to learn how to download, you know, from an app. Oh my God. I refuse. <laughs> I just do Amazon. I just order them off of Amazon. I don't want an right? ebook. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I've been reading a lot about uh, about race and racial injustice mm-hmm. for some reason. Um, and I'm going to mispronounce uh, uh, Teishan, Teishani, about uh, a notebook to his son about racism in America. Oh, that it. book. Oh, my gosh. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yes. Um, Between the World and Me. Incredible yes. book. I missed work for yes. that book. I was on my way to work, and I picked mm-hmm. it up, and I called in, and I've got to finish this. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It was very, very uh, emotional. And I've been on that kick for a while i tend to go on kicks like uh, uh women in history that are barely written about i did a uh, a stint on that and read a fabulous book about cleopatra wow uh, and i do believe if i were to you know and ask the question who would if you could have been anyone cleopatra all those oil baths you know with oh, yeah. messing with her hair and shaving your skin and oh my god <laughs> Patra, uh-huh, that's who. The two lovers, you know, uh, the Roman uh, soldier lovers that uh, she uh, acquired, her mm-hmm. power, her wisdom. Did you know that she was also a gynecologist and spoke nine languages? Wow. I, I know nothing about Cleo Cleopatra except for, mm-hmm. you know, the image of some lady with the, with the cat mm-hmm. eyes or whatever. So, no, I don't know. That's awesome. I have to read, up, read up on her. Yes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, what are you reading lately? Oh, man. Um, I'm reading a wonderful book called The Years of Rice and Salt. It's a science, it's like a, a fantasy type book. No, it's an alternative mm-hmm. history, okay. which is just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the idea is what if the Black Plague wiped out Europe and Christianity and then the mm-hmm. other world religions were able to flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have any colonialism. You don't have any, you know, um, of that sort of stuff it's it's really interesting um and then touch right that's the other book that i'm reading um about the importance for touch and health and with kids mm-hmm. and the importance of um giving your babies your newborn babies massages mm-hmm. so those yeah. are my two books that i'm that i'm reading now massages absolutely sensual touch helps with comfort bonding security all of that immune system immune system absolutely absolutely reduces inf- inf- inflammation yeah yes yeah touch is critical so i'm glad to get that uh information out and i'm delighted you're uh you asked to interview me so i could get the word out more absolutely well look if you ever write another, another book let me know i'd okay. love to read it and have you have you back on okay thank you so much mm-hmm. okay bye for now see you later <laughs>